Well, it's good to see you again today. Uh, another week goes by quickly, doesn't it? Um, it's good to be together in the Lord's house, as Kurt said, to worship, to spend time together, to fellowship, to encourage each other, and to uh, study God's Word together. Um, I picked the Christmas hymn that we just sang because I thought it would be, it's because the Gospel of John is all about revealing Jesus. It's all about revealing the Jesus um, who came to save us. And I thought it was good for us to sing a Christmas hymn even about that revelation of Jesus as a little baby. Uh, we're going to see him as an adult today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. But I wanted us to look today at chapter 2 and verses 1 through 17 for our scripture reading. This is um, always important for us to do because we're reading God's Word and we know that it's God's Word that is His truth, that He's inspired, that He's given to us. He's given to us so that we can know Him and so that we could know Him truly. So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word beginning at John chapter 2 verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This ends the reading of God's word. And we give thanks always, knowing that it's his truth, it's His Word to us. It's not just His Word today, it's His Word forever because it's inspired and, and errant and in 
incapable of error, as we understand. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can study your word together this morning. We thank you that your Holy Spirit uh, is the one who teaches us these things and applies the things that we see and hear and understand to our hearts. We pray that you would teach us and lead us into all truth and that you would guide us in the way to walk each day, whether it's on a Sunday or on a weekday. Father, we look to you for your help. We look to you for our friends and we thank you that uh, we can pray for each one as we've just done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when you have to make an important decision, um, we always have certain routines, perhaps, that we follow. How do we make certain decisions? When Susan and I uh, were considering leaving one church and serving in another after a few years, I remember we took a week to go away to my parents' home and to spend some time there. And I, my grandfather had an old farm out in the country. And I remember going out there during that time and walking uh, in the pasture out there just by myself praying and asking the Lord what to do about our next place in life and what we should do. Sometimes in order to get clarity, people do interesting things. I read an article this past week about a famous football player who was trying to make a career decision about whether to continue playing or whether to retire from the NFL. And what he did was to do something I'd never heard of before. What he did was he made the decision to go to what he called a darkness retreat. Now, I've never heard this before. A darkness retreat is where you go away from civilization. You go to a dark place, maybe a cave, maybe a soundproof room. And when you go, you spend a few days there. And once they orient you, they take you in. They show you where the bed or... In one place, it was only a mat to sleep on. But they show you where the bed is, where the bathroom is. They show you, you know, just kind of measure out the room. And then they turn off the light and they leave you. And you're there from one day to five days or some people to a week. And it's in that darkness, they say, that many people have had the clarity to make decisions about what their life would be. Now, I never heard of such a, uh, an endeavor before, but uh, I don't think I want to try it, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think I want to try putting my hands out across the room to try to find out where the bed is or to find if they've left me a meal tray out front. Well, John's gospel was written to help us decide about Jesus. John's gospel is giving us information but it's not just information alone, but it's information that would propel us to make a decision. In John 20, 31, he said, These things are written to you in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel for a purpose. He didn't just write it to be writing a biography of Jesus. He wrote it so that we would actually do something, so that we would make a decision to follow. We could seek to follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
John's biography was written so that we would understand who Jesus was, what he did, and why it mattered. That's what we talked about last week from John chapter 1. But today I want us to look at John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we find another part of Jesus' busy life. In chapter 2, we're going to see some events that took place. We're going to look at these events and see how they lead us to respond. Uh, the first event was where Jesus showed his power over nature. The second event was how he showed his authority over true worship. And then the third one was how we're supposed to respond. So let's look at these uh, three areas of interest this morning. When you look at John chapter 2, in the first 11 verses, one of the things that you see is that Jesus is in a little town, community, village, whatever it was, called Cana. Cana was near his home in Nazareth. And Jesus was there and his disciples were there. And his mother was also there. In verse 1, the chapter starts off and it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So we're, we're told it was the third day. Now probably it was the third day from when he met Philip in chapter 1. Or maybe it was the third day um, that uh, Jesus had arrived in, in Galilee. We're not real sure. But John's sure, and he's writing, on the third day, then there was this wedding at Cana in Galilee. Probably towards the end of the week, like we have weekend weddings. And at this wedding, Jesus was there, his disciples were there, and so was his mother. It wasn't long at the wedding celebration before something happened that was brought to Jesus' attention. Jesus' mother came up to him and she said, you know they've run out of wine. Now remember these weddings, depending on the wealth of the person that was having the wedding, a wedding lasted a long time. A wedding lasted several days, perhaps even a week. Um, we were, when I was working with our West African mission, and I was in uh, Senegal one time, we, we, were, uh, we visited a wedding and there was it had been going on in the village for several days. And this is so much like, that's one of the things I loved about being in, in Africa was it was, their traditions were so similar to what we find here in the scriptures. The weddings lasted a long time and for the wine to run out early in the celebration, uh, it was gonna be a deep and troubling embarrassment to the host, to the bridegroom particularly. Well, Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, they don't have any wine. They've run out. Now, Jesus responded right to her. And, you know, with our Western thinking and with our cultural mindsets, we look at it and it appears to us to be a rude way of responding to your mother. Because Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. He said, woman, what does that have to do with you and me? My hour has not come yet come. What he meant was, of course, that the hour of his passion, the hour of his suffering, the hour of his suffering for his, for his uh, people had not yet come. In other words, the crucial part of the ministry 
that he was looking to perform. But his mother just said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She knew him. She knew that he was going to act. And it wasn't discourteous at all. The commentators all point that out, that it was just a culturally way to respond. But Jesus uh, was there, and, and his mother said, help these people, and he did. Now, when people look at this event in the Gospel of John, they come at it from different perspectives. And a lot of people say, well, you know, this is just Jesus. This is just him helping the poor and the needy. This is just Jesus helping people who would be embarrassed if something didn't happen. Um, you know, he was always helping the sick and the needy, and he was. And he spent his whole ministry healing and helping. But this was more than that. Because what Jesus was doing was revealing who he was. Now remember, his whole ministry is set so that he can reveal who he is because, as John said, the Lord Jesus came so that people might put their faith in him, might believe in him. Remember in John chapter 1 it says he came to his own. But sadly, the nation didn't receive him. He came to his own. His own received him not. But those who did receive him, to them he gave eternal life. He gave them the right to become the children of God. So here is Jesus revealing himself. It's not just a good deed that he did to help somebody in trouble. But what Jesus was doing was revealing his true nature. Think about... Um, how this happened. Jesus said to the servants, go ahead and fill those water pots all the way to the brim. So they filled those water pots. Now what were they? Those water pots were by the, the place where everybody came in for the wedding, where everybody came in for the feast. It was a ceremonial cleansing of their hands and of their feet. This is Again, this is something that goes on, it especially goes on in Muslim cultures today. I was at a, we were at a mosque on a Friday morning, the day of worship for Muslims. And I remember seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this, in this Muslim mosque in Africa. And as they came up outside, there was a place where they washed their hands and their feet. They, before they came into the holy place, to the special place designed for worship. There were these six water pots that were there. They were all large, and they held between 20 and 30 gallons of water apiece. You can imagine how heavy they were. Well, those water pots, the, the servants filled up. Now, this event where the water is turned into wine is called a sign. Uh, John says in here, this was one of the eight signs that he's going to talk about in the Gospel of John. In the book of Acts, it talks about signs, miracles, and wonders. There are three different Greek words that are used for miraculous events. Signs, miracles, and wonders. This one, the first one, this, the word for sign, is the word that points out that the mighty works of Jesus reveal who he was. This sign was something that was one that was going to tell about Jesus. So the water has been filled, the water in the pots, 
has been filled to the brim. And Jesus spoke to the servants. And he said to the servants, take the ladle, dip it in to the water pot, and carry it to the master of the host, to the master of the, of the ceremony. Um, the servants had filled it. One servant picked out the ladle and carried it to the master of the feast and gave it to him. And uh, the servants, of course, knew where it had come from and what it was. But the master of the feast took it and he drank it. And what did he say? He said, he called the, remember, he calls the bridegroom over. And he says to the bridegroom, what usually happens at a wedding like this is they put the good, the host puts the good wine out first. And when everybody has drunk deeply so that they can't tell the difference, then he brings out the inferior wine. But he says, you've done just the opposite. What you did was you brought out, you brought out the best wine now. You brought out the better wine now. The Lord Jesus Christ had turned those six water pots full of water into wine, and not just average wine, but good wine, as the uh, master of the feast said. Now, why did Jesus do that? Did he do it just so that the wedding wouldn't be ruined? Just so that the bridegroom wouldn't be embarrassed or his family? No, he did it to reveal who he was. Who is it that can turn water into wine? Who is it that has power over all of creation? What did John say in the beginning in, in chapter 1? He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. He said, all things that came into being, that came into existence, came into existence through Him. And nothing, not one thing came into existence except through Him. Here is, we should not be, you know, amazed, should we? Because the Lord of all creation, he told that water to become wine, and it did. He took that water and turned it into wine because of who he was, because he was revealing something about himself. He turned ordinary water into good wine. It was a miracle. Now, as I was in seminary, I bought a set of books, a set of commentaries by a Scottish theologian by the name of William Barclay. And William Barclay is a pretty well-known uh, commentator. He's got a whole series of commentaries uh, on the New Testament. He taught New Testament at uh, one of the uh, universities or seminaries in Scotland for years. But you know what's interesting about William Barclay? He struggles to believe in miracles. Now he gives you some great material on the culture, on language, on what the Greeks said, on what was going on there, on the background. But when it comes to a miracle, he always wants to explain it away. He always wants to find an ordinary solution for it. You know, he wants to find some other reason that that really happened. Now, why do we need to explain away miracles? The text clearly tells us it was a miracle. 
uh, John says it was a sign. It was one of the eight signs that point to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Messiah that came for us. Jesus was the one that made everything in this world. He made everything that we see. He made everything that we look at in the telescope. He, make every, he made everything in, that we look at in the microscope. He made everything. He is God. And see, this is what uh, John is taking trouble to do. He is presenting to us the second person of the Trinity and showing to us that this is the one that has power over nature and that the power that he had over nature pointed to his person, to who he was. This was the beginning of the signs that Jesus did, is what John wrote, when he manifested his glory. Now, you and I can take water and grape juice and some ingredients, and given enough time, we can make wine. But you know what? Jesus just said, fill the water pots and take the ladle. And it was wine. And it was good wine. Jesus is the one who has power over nature. He has power over the earth that he's made because he is God the Son and the Son of God. Now, the next event that John recorded in this chapter was what happened when Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now Jesus, this is, remember, this is the beginning of the Gospel of John. John is recording to us, not chronologically necessarily, uh, because he's going to leave certain things out in order that he can put other things in. But this was early in the ministry of Jesus. We know that Mark and Luke and Matthew point out that Jesus cleansed the temple, but he did it during the last week of his life. It's one, if you get the Gospel of Mark, you'll see, oh, this is one of the last things that Jesus did in cleansing the temple. And some people get confused. They say, well, how can there have been two cleansings? John must have it wrong, because John records it as something that happened very early, and the other synoptic gospel guys, they all write it down as something that happened late in the last week of his life. Well, the truth is that John did this, that Jesus did this twice because John records it as something early and the other gospel writers record it as something late. And rather than to see a conflict there, the simple truth is Jesus did it twice. You know how, how we are? You know what we do is when somebody calls our hand on something, you know, let's say a, a child is doing something wrong and mom comes out and she says, stop that right now. And he stops and she goes back in the house. And as soon as she's back in the house, what does he do? Well, he starts doing exactly what he was doing before mom came out. You know, that's what happened here. Jesus cleansed the temple in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. And by the end of the three-year ministry, those money changers, those dove sellers, those oxen and sheep sellers were all back in the temple doing exactly what they had been doing before Jesus threw them out three years before. Now, when Jesus cleansed the temple, you know, he came, he came for the Passover. Now, you remember what the Passover was all about. 
The Passover was the celebration of the fact that God had delivered his people from the bondage or slavery uh, that the people were in in Egypt. The Exodus was, you know, at the first Passover was right before the Exodus, right before they got permission to leave and to go out into the wilderness and to go um, towards the promised land. The Exodus came about, remember, because of that when the Passover was when, of course, when they killed the lamb, they put the blood on the doorposts of the door, and the death angel came along, and when every, he came to every house, and every house that had the blood on the door, symbolic of the death of the sacrificial lamb, then the death angel passed over and didn't take the firstborn. But on those Egyptian homes, where there was no blood on the doorpost, the death angel came and took the firstborn, remember? The celebration that Passover was that God had passed over the sins of his people by taking the life of his firstborn and saving us, a people for himself, saving a people for himself by his own blood. So Jesus gets to the temple during the Passover and he finds that the people who used to, in times past, have all of their booths for selling animals and doing the money changing, they used to have that outside of the temple, off the temple grounds. But by this time, they had become so greedy and so selfish that they wanted the best place in the world to sell and buy and do all of this, so they moved it into the outer court of the temple itself. Now, picture the scene. In the outer court of the temple, there are animals everywhere. There are oxen, there are sheep, there are dove sellers, and you bought whichever one you could afford. Then there were money changers. There were money changers there because uh, there were, various uh, there were various currencies all over the empire, right? Some of these people had come from far, far away. They'd come, every Jewish male was supposed to report to Jerusalem for the Passover or for one of the major feasts. They were supposed to come every year. And if they came from a great distance, from somewhere in Turkey or from even over in Greece or Rome or any place like that, when they came all the way, they had different currencies. And their different currencies, some of them were more pure than others. So some of their, their currencies would have been worth more than others. So in order to have a uniformity in a sense, they had money changers there that were sanctioned by the Sadducees who were the ruling authority at that point. You also know that they wouldn't want to offer certain uh, currencies in the temple. Dr. John Phillips in his commentary says, one reason is that no coins with the image of the emperor or other heathen symbol could be put into the temple treasury. You wouldn't want a, a heathen coin brought into the, you know, remember the violation of the, of the second commandment. They wouldn't want that to be brought into the temple. So, here are these coin dealers 
they're there trading currencies. You know, you have so much in this currency, I'll give you this in the temple currency. And they, I don't know, when, you remember when you, uh, if you've traveled abroad, you've gone into an airport. When you go into an airport in a new country and you're coming in from Europe or you're coming in from the United States and you land in India or you land in uh, Africa, Senegal, Ivory Coast, you go in and over there there's an exchange place. So you go in and you exchange your American dollars or your euros and you get the local currency so that you can buy meals and so that you can do all the normal things that you need to do. Pay your taxi driver, pay for your hotel bill. So you go in there and for this amount of your American dollars, you can trade for this amount of CFA or euros or whatever the currency might be. Now, in a Jewish culture, I wonder if not only was the din, the, the loud noise, the communion, the hubbub caused by the dealers in the animals and all of their noise, but also maybe the money changers are saying, I'll give you for, for three kroners or whatever, I'll give you this many in the temple currency. So the place was mass pandemonium. So what did Jesus do when he comes into the temple and he sees all this? Well, the first thing he does is he makes a whip out of ropes and he drives those animals out and then he turns over the money changers' tables and he says, you are not to make my father's house a den of merchandise. Now, if everything Jesus did had a point to it, that he was doing something revelatory, that he was revealing something about himself to the people. What was he revealing here? Well, he was revealing here that he is the Lord of the temple. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who, as God the Son, with a zeal for his Father, is offended when his Father's house is turned into a common Bazaar. He's offended when it's turned into a bazaar. You see, this is exactly what the scripture said the true Messiah would be like because the disciples later remembered that Psalm 69 said the Messiah would be consumed with a zeal for his father's house. That was one of the things that proved to them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah when they thought about it, when they reflected on the resurrection, when they reflected on the three-year ministry of Jesus, they said, this was what characterized Jesus. He had a zeal for his father's house. He would be the one that would be deeply offended by the house of God, the temple of God, the successor to the tabernacle in the wilderness being turned into a uh, an unholy place. You remember those guys that were selling, that were doing the money changing, were making at least 12%. They were making 12% off the pilgrims that came in there with other currencies. They were robbing people to suit their own pocketbooks. Jesus was offended. 
Now, do you see how these two events revealed Jesus in all of His glory? That's what John was doing. John said that Jesus was the God-man with absolute power over nature. And Jesus was also the divine Son of God who had the authority over true worship. Jesus had shown His power by turning water into wine and He'd exercised His authority by defining what true worship was at the temple. The disciples remembered all of that from, from the Psalms and they saw all of His character. But the question was, would they receive this one? Would they receive this one for who He was? Would they trust in Him as their Messiah? Would they trust in Him as the true Passover Lamb? Would they trust in Him as John called Him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Jesus gave them information, but what would they do with it? Would they believe that Jesus was their Messiah? Would they trust Him to bear their sins and bring them to God? The people that saw Jesus there that day after the temple incident weren't satisfied. If you look at what happened next, they came up to Jesus and they said, <clears throat> what sign will you show us that proves you have the authority to do this? And you know what Jesus' quick answer was to them? He said, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they said, are you crazy? It took 46 years to build this temple. How in the world can we destroy it and then in three days you raise it up? That's impossible. Now this sounded so crazy to them, they couldn't believe it. But Jesus wasn't talking to them about the building they were in. Jesus was talking to them about the temple of His body. He was talking to them about Him as the sanctuary. He was talking about the resurrection. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. In three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking about being raised from the dead after his death on the cross. We know that some of those people did close their eyes and their minds, didn't they? They closed their eyes and their minds to who Jesus was. They closed their mind to him as having power over nature. They closed their minds to him having authority over true worship. They closed their minds to the fact later on that when the resurrection took place, they just ignored it. Many people did. They saw these people raised from the dead. They heard about people walking into town who had been in the grave. They heard about the temple being torn, about the curtain of the temple being torn in half. They heard about the stone being rolled away and that Jesus had appeared to His disciples. And so many of them still didn't believe, just like John said in chapter 1. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. Now, this chapter ends with Jesus refusing to entrust Himself to people who refused to believe in Him. He said He knew what was in man, and He didn't entrust Himself to them. He didn't give Himself to them because they would have nothing to do with Him. They'd closed their minds against Him. They'd closed their hearts against Him. So no matter how powerful the miracle was, they refused to believe. But that leads us to ask this question. So why did Jesus come? Why did He reveal Himself to human beings? Why did He display His glory? 
You see, because God has a great plan, and His plan has to do with saving people. Saving people who normally would close their minds and hearts. Jesus has this great plan to gather to Himself and elect people from all over the world, from every tongue, tribe, nation. Jesus has a plan to gather His elect people in before Him, and we're all going to be before Him, as, as Kurt was talking to us about true worship, that we're all going to be before Him one day in worshiping. How do we get there? We get there through the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again. That's exactly where He goes next in John chapter 3, right? Because He spends all of John chapter 3 talking to Nicodemus about this is what it means to be born again. But you see, it's this powerful plan that God has to bring to Himself a people. He's going to bring to Himself a people. He's going to break down the walls of unbelief. He's going to break down the heart that says, no, I refuse to believe, like He did in, in somebody like Paul or other people that we have known who have been one way all their lives and then bingo, they meet Christ as a risen Savior and their lives are transformed and changed. They're not the same person they were before. Everything about them is different. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. John 1.12 says, He's made this promise to us that as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Believing in this Jesus and entrusting yourself to Him is that decision that you and I are called to make after looking at the evidence. And you see, we're going to be held accountable for what we know, for what we hear, for what we see. We're going to be held accountable for what's before us, for the light that we had. Believing in this Jesus and entrusting yourself to Him is the decision that we're called to make. To know Jesus as the true Messiah and as the true bread from heaven is to know this one who alone can satisfy the needs of our hearts. You see, we were made for Him, and as long as we run and go the other way, we're going to be miserable and unhappy. As long as we run that other way, we're going to be miserable and unhappy. We're never going to find fulfillment. You remember what Augustine said? He says, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. To know Jesus as the true Messiah is to know him as the only one who can satisfy all of your heart's longings. And we're called to rest in that one so that we can find the rest of eternal salvation, the rest of eternity that God has promised to all who come to him. In him is life, and his life is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus the light of the world. We thank you for sending him to open our eyes to see the truth of what is, of what is the truth about Jesus, that he's Lord of heaven and earth, that he is the one who has authority over nature, that he is the one that has authority to regulate true worship, and that he is the one who must be trusted. We pray, Father, that you would give each of us this morning trusting hearts that we would believe what you've said and believe the one that you sent 
and rest all of our hope in you because we want, Father, to be part of that family, which is your family forever. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the ministry of the, your church, and we pray that you would guide us this day to be closer and closer to you. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen.